Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. As usual, my name is Michael and co-hosting with me is Phoenix. Today we have two guests. Our first guest is Ikemesit. Ikemesit is a postgraduate student of international business. No, sorry, I was mixing up the names. Ikemesit is the head of research at SBM Intelligence. And our second guest is Omasa. Omasa is a postgraduate student of international business. Now, the three topics we'll be discussing today are firstly, the claim by Bishop Kuka that Buhari has destroyed Nigeria's unity and created ethnic conflicts. Secondly, we'll discuss the claims by the National Security Advisor, Major General Moguno, that Governor Erufai of Kaduna talks too much and reveals security plans to the bandits or the terrorists. And then thirdly, we're discussing the claims by former President Jonathan that he's discussing joining the 2023 presidential race. So firstly to Phoenix. Phoenix, Bishop Kuka has criticized Buhari again, accusing him of ruining Nigeria's national unity and creating ethnic conflicts. Um, is there any, because the, the Nigerian government was, was quite angry and a no, 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 number of people on social media seem to take offense to Bishop Kuka's comments. So in your view, is there a basis uh, for his claims? Hi, Michael, and uh, hi, Kemeset and Omasa. Thank you for joining us this week. Um, and hello, listeners. Great to be here again for another episode of the show. Thanks for always stay, sticking with us and for the feedback we get all the time. I, I think, I mean, when I first, when I read it, I mean, I was like, uh, Father Kuka or Bishop Kuka, my, my apologies, is... Uh, speaking truth again. I mean, he told no, no lies in my view. Uh, there was nothing there that he said that I have not said before or that other well-meaning Nigerians who have watched this president show up as the most divisive leader that we've ever had in, in so many respects. I mean, so people who are, of course, you can expect that uh, uh, the government will push back. Uh, but those who are on social media, wherever they are, are either apologists or they simply have no clue. Talk about every single thing that he has done from, from the moment he, he was announced as, as being elected as president. From his utterances, we all remember the 97 versus 5% to um, his clear marginalization of the Southeast. It, it, is, it is stark and very obvious that unless he is forced by the constitution to include that part of the country, he, he does not. Then to his appointments, which have been as lopsided as, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's any other person who has made, who has done that in the history of this country. So they, they, I, where people, I mean, these are facts. These are not, this is not conjecture. This is not something that is debatable. So when people say, um, Bishop Kuka was going too far, or he, or the allegations were were, were untenable. They, they really don't know what they're talking about. There's no doubt about this. Do we want to talk about the fact that IPOB was proscribed, even though they were not they were not armed? I mean, I'm not talking about the the subsequent guys with ESN and all the nonsense that those ones have been doing, but the, at the time that IPOB was proscribed as terrorists. They had not taken up arms against the Nigerian state. But then contrast that with how long it took to, to proscribe bandits as terrorists, despite the fact that they were kidnapping, they were attacking, they were killing people, the reticence to do that. Then adding the, the Fulani headsmen who were rampaging everywhere, and this guy turned, turned a blind eye. Talk about, I mean, the, the impact of their attacks in Benue, where he supposedly sent his inspector general of police. The guy did not show up there and Buari did not hold him to account. Got there and was saying, oh, I did not know that the guy did not, I told the guy to locate. I mean, it's ridiculous for anyone to even contest this. So when Bishop Uba says the things he says, I'm in full agreement with him. I mean, Buhari's presidency is a black mark on Nigeria, and that is, that is saying a lot, considering that we've had despicable people like Abacha rulers. So 
in terms of divisiveness, in terms of the, the, the and, and to the crux of what Bishop Kuka was talking about, what he was saying was that because of how Buhari has led, he has practically created a to your tense O Israel kind of situation in Nigeria. Those are my words, not his, but essentially that's what he was saying. That because he has done things this way, everyone has now sought to find solace in their ethnic groupings, which was not the case before this guy came in. Of course, we've always had our differences. Nobody is claiming that Nigeria had a perfect union. We've never had a perfect union. And we know that our constitution holds us back from having that perfect union. But we found ways to deal with one another. It was not this, this difficult. I mean, Michael, I remember, I mean, you've been saying this quite a lot on Twitter, where you would say, why all of a sudden are we hearing so much disparaging remarks towards the Igbos in Nigeria? All of, I mean, of course, we know that, I mean, election season is coming up. A lot of us are agitating that that part of the country should be, should have the presidency's zone to them. But you see how people are emboldened to speak against other Nigerians in a very derogatory fashion. It has escalated under this last seven years. So when things like that are apparent to everyone, <laughs> I mean, how do people then turn around and act like, I mean, either, either they're being ostriches and sticking their heads in the sand, or they're trying to gaslight us and make it as if we don't know what has been happening. So I'm fully behind Bishop Kuka. And again, I'm thankful to him that he chooses to say these things because we, we, we know how things happen in despotic regimes. But I mean, there were, there were no lies in what he said. It's what we've, we've called out. We've said that this, I have said this several times on our podcast over the last couple of years. As you said it in my writings, it is very obvious that Buhari has been the, the most divisive leader that we've had. Even if I want to make it, okay, only since 1999 when we have returned to democracy, he is clearly the most divisive leader we've had in Nigeria. Thank you, Phoenix. Ikemesit, you've heard what Phoenix has said, um, basically agreeing with Bishop Kuka that Buhari is both uh, divisive and has destroyed Nigeria's unity. Well, the question I ask is, a number of Buhari's defenders have said this is not true, that in fact, as Vice President Oshibanjo said, he said Buhari is a patriot and a nationalist. And they've given examples of senior people in his government who are from a variety of ethnic groups. They say, for example, Rotimi Amechi, who is one of the most powerful ministers, is from River State. They talk about Bola Ahmed Tinubu, who is from Lagos State, or some say Oshun, who is the leader of the party. They highlight um, others in the government, the likes of Adam Zoshiemli, who was former party chairman. They, they mention a, a few people who allegedly are influential in Buhari's government. So do you think those defenses have any merit? Can I sit? Um, first, thanks for having me um, on the podcast. Uh, great fan. Been listening to uh, to you and Phoenix for years now, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, on the surface, the their argument does have some uh, does have some currency, but um, I think the the subtext to the entire conversation really transcends, um, it really transcends just mere political representation at the highest level. I mean, first and foremost, constitutionally, the president is mandated to account for federal character in the, uh, in the distribution of appointments, right? Um, especially at the most senior level. And so I, I the, the presence of those people in the president's cabinet, I suppose, is more a manifestation of the president fulfilling his constitutional responsibilities and less a searing commentary on his commitment to, to broad-based political representation. So, I, so, so that's the first part of the conversation. I think it's when you go down a couple of layers, especially within the civil and the, and the political bureaucracy, Right, which everyone here in the room and most of the listenership would would call forms the bedrock of governance and policy setting in this country. That's when you begin to. That's that's when that argument 
right, begins to lose uh, some of its substance. Um, but, but just staying at the federal level, I think, I think a historiography of, of how Nigeria's uh, political structure is set up is, um, is appropriate at this point. Um, just as I was pointing out to, uh, to some members of my team when uh, we, we had a conversation along these lines uh, um, earlier last week, um, if you look at the situation, particularly in the Southeast, um, and, you, and you juxtapose that with the, the ethnicities of, the, um, of, of our leaders, right, at the federal level, especially the people who actually run this country, either as president or as military heads of states, uh, the Southeast has only been nominally in substantive charge of this country's political affairs for six months and six I mean, over Nigeria's 60 year history. Um, and that's a really, really profound thing. And I don't think that comes across to a lot of Nigerians when, when this conversation around political representation gets brought up. It's, 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 it's outstanding and it's, it's, it's astounding in a country of, um, in, in a multi-ethnic, um, multi-religious, um, really culturally heterogeneous society like ours, it's really astounding that we've been able to get away with that. Now, some people will make the argument, okay, you know, the Southeast, I mean, the South-South had its um, opportunity with, uh, with the last presidents before this current administration. Um, but even if you account for that, it's at the highest levels of decision-making in this country, there've clearly been many parts of this country that have been shut out of that. And when that is the reality, right? And when that is the context in which you operate, then there's a heightened sensitivity to policy-making that disproportionately affects, right? The people who are from those marginalized regions. And I don't think that a lot of people either support or make arguments or are actually part of the, this current administration um, actually understand or, or maybe they do and they've willfully chosen to to ignore it but just a very elemental reading of nigerian history would really make that particular point stand out and so and so in that sense i'm not willing to concede the arguments that having a few people in your cabinet which you're legally and constitutionally mandated to, to have anyway, right? Um, suddenly invalidates, you know, a, a long and a well-established body of work that to be fair transcends this administration, but has also happened, right, within this administration, right? That proves um, the, the, the converse point. And so that's really where sort of my framing addressing um, this particular issue, you know, starts from. Thank you, Mikamasit. It seems you and Phoenix clearly agree with Buhari. Let me come to Amasa because there's a different aspect of this. Bishop Kuka, for example. I don't agree with Buhari. We agree with Kuka. No, I mean, both, both agree with Kuka. Sorry. Buhari. <laughs> I think my, my memory is uh, failing me. But let me come to Omasa. Um, Omasa, one of the interesting things about this whole debate is Bishop Kuka has not always been a critic of Buhari. In fact, in 2015, and I think sometime in 20, 2007, Bishop Kuka actually used to defend Buhari when people accused him of being divisive or being an extremist. So the question then, Omasa, is what is Bishop Kuka only seeing now than other people could have seen or people saw uh, decades before? And isn't it a bit hypocritical of Bishop Kuka to be saying things now when he ought to have spoken up at the time when before when Buhari was running for office, Amasa? Well, to be fair to the bishop, he has been since Buhari came and since issues come up, he's been consistently criticizing the man when he feels he has done 
things wrong. For example, in the security issue, Bishop Kukul was one of the first people that started raising alarm and complaining about that. And to be fair, on the reason why he didn't comment on elections beforehand, well, to be fair, like everything about Buhari is literally on public record. He's been head of state. He's been a three-time presidential candidate. He's done all these things. So he does not need to comment. I think Buhari's antecedents are clear for everyone to know. I really don't understand why people try to pretend otherwise, because in 2015, it was clear what the man was, how the man was going to behave, what he's going to do, and how he's going to enter. So I don't think he was being hypocritical or anything. He has consistently criticized governments when they failed in every sphere. So to be fair to the bishop, it is only he has every right to criticize him because of the security situation that's got out of hand. And that's a major and that's been a major crisis, and there's been major crises everywhere in the north of Nigeria. So he has a very good sense. Thank you. Thank you, Amasa. No, the, the question is, let me see if I can rephrase the question to you. The question is not whether Bishop Kuga has the right to criticize him or is valid in criticizing him post-2015. The point is, a number of people had identified these aspects of Buhari's character before he was elected in 2015, and Bishop Kuka actually used to defend Buhari. So isn't it a bit too late now? Now that the man is in power, you are now speaking up, accusing him of dividing the country, when it was obvious to many people, they would say, uh, before he got power. So that's the question I'm asking. Well, yes, it was. Yeah, Buhari has always been a very divisive character. It was clear for everyone to see. And the bishop is a bit hypocritical, yes, criticizing him, but he's not the only one. Lots of people we fooled in 2015, and I don't know how they did that. I don't really know how they did that in the end, that Buhari would be a changed character when he came to office. So in this case, Mr. Kuka, as being a man of God, probably thought that this was the case and that Buhari had genuinely changed, and maybe he felt that way. It's obviously too late to do anything about it. Buhari's going to be gone in a year. So the year from now, and yeah, a lot of damage and suffering would have been avoided if people had actually taken the man seriously and so and so that's how he, how his be that his behavior was going to change, but it's too late now. And yeah, it's a bit hypocritical. Thank you. Thank you, Omasa. Let me put the final question to on this topic to Phoenix. Phoenix, the, the interesting thing is if we all agree, or, or if majority of Nigerians agree, or I can't speak for the majority of Nigerians, but if there seems to be consensus amongst three of you that Buhari has divided this country both on an ethnic and religious basis and has particularly been harsh towards the Igbos. Then how come all these prominent people from various parts of the country, for example, the, the governor of the central bank, uh, Godwin Emiafile, is, is arguably Igbo from Agbo. Some people from Agbo will say they're Igbo. Some might say they're from the Ika. So let's, let's say it's arguably Igbo. You have the foreign minister, uh, whose whose name I've actually forgotten. That's how uh, <laughs> that's how, how out of the news he is. But the foreign the foreign the foreign minister is yes. oh yes uh, Jeffrey Oyema. Jeffrey Oyema is Igbo. You have Rotimi Rotimi Chibuike Amechi who also claims he's Igbo. You have Chris Ngige who's Igbo. You have Ken Unamani, the former Senate president, who is also a supporter of the president. So why are all these people from some from the Igbo ethnic group and others from other ethnic groups in the South. Why are they all still supporting Buhari if he's as bad as people claim he is, Phoenix? Political expediency, you know. I mean, I mean, history, history is replete with um, examples of, of bad leaders who have uh, supporters among the people um, that, that they lead, even though they are, they are despots. I mean, Hitler had his own people, didn't he? If you go to Chile, you, Pinochet has had his own people. So, I mean, Mussolini in Italy had his own people. So you would always have people who, for whatever benefits they are getting, will support someone who is clearly um, not providing a positive outcome for the greater majority, as long as they are taking care of the... the they damn the consequences. And most of the people you've called have hung on to, first of all, they joined forces with Buhari to, you know, have access to power because that was the only way they could defeat 
the PDP then. And they've stuck with him because they were looking forward to 2023, where it would then be their own turn to, uh, for, for a moment in the sun. So we cannot, they're not doing this from, a, from a, any altruistic uh, perspective. So let's bear that in mind. And of course, chalk it away as human character and with the worst of us being in leadership, you get to see things like this. So it, it doesn't it doesn't speak to um, it, it doesn't take away from the fact that I mean Buhari has been a net negative for Nigeria, especially from a unity perspective. I mean th th that would be his legacy. The fact that he came in at a point where yes, we we had the simmering of of an issue uh, because clearly a part of the country felt that they had been hard done by when uh, Omar Musaya Adua died and couldn't complete his, his term in office. And so, um, you know, Jonathan took over. And, and so they, they, were, they were aggrieved and wanted power back at all, at all costs. But what has then happened in the time since then has just exacerbated the issue that we had, which could have been better handled if you had, and, and for someone, of his age and his history, although maybe his history was a pointer to what he was going to give because a lot of us who had studied this guy knew he cannot give what he doesn't have. He was never a unifier. This guy was never a unifier. If you look at Buhari's history, it was never about him. You know, they, they call him a nationalist, but people forget that in Nigeria, the way people define nationalism or patriotism is, is you have to be careful to, to to query that definition. Because when they talk about it, they're talking about it from a one Nigeria, oh, we keep you together at all costs perspective. Not a one Nigeria, we're going to look for a fair and equitable means for clearly disparate nationalities to come together in one entity and live harmoniously. That's what a patriot should be pushing for, but that's not what he is about. He is about um, the civil war, is about, you know, we put down, we put them down so that we can keep this entity together because it benefits the part of the country I'm, I'm from. That's why this same guy was, was, was suspended by, uh, had his tweets deleted by, by Twitter. We saw his tweet. Does that speak to somebody who is a patriot? So people who are supporting him, they are what, uh, uh, what is that word that is usually used for them? Um, my English fails me now. It's not enablers. There's, there's this word that, that really... Polarizing? Is that what you're looking for? Is it collab collaborators, I think? What I'll think about it. I know in Nazi Germany, there was, a, there was a word you used for all those people who were, who were enabling the Nazis to... That's a strong, that's a strong term. <laughs> no, seriously, that's how I feel. That's, that, that's how I feel. If you, if, you are, if you are in bed with this guy, and you clearly see all these things and you're only there for your own benefit, then that's what you are, you're a collaborator. Well, thank you, Phoenix, for, for setting out your, your views on the member supporters of Buhari's government who are, who are not from his, his wing of the country. But to the next topic, which is the National Security Advisor, Major General Moguno has criticized Nasir Orofai, accusing him of talking too much. Let me start with Ikemesit. I mean, Ikemesit, what, what is going on in this Buhari APC government? There always seems to be one official attacking the other. It never seems to be done in private. There always seems to be public, what Nigerians call rufu rufu fights between different uh, factions of the government. So, can you talk us through this new? argument. Why is the National Security Advisor accusing Governor Rufai of talking too much? It came as it. Okay, um, so this particular issue I feel a bit more strongly about, uh, because I mean, first, it's, we're talking about security here, right? Um, and secondly, because I think secu security management has been one of the key feelings of this government. Now, um, the National Security Advisor basically say, uh, basically made the argument that the Kaduna State Governor, Rufai, uh, basically says too much about what the government's security strategy, particularly with respect to handling and tackling the uh, the banditry situation, although I'm uncomfortable with 
describing what's going on in the Northeast as banditry. Uh, but just for the sake of the understanding of the listeners, let's 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 use that imperfect um, descriptor. So particularly with respect to banditry in the Northwest and, and also with the recent escalation of the security situation in Kaduna, El has in recent weeks said things to the effect that the governments know who these armed gangs are, they know who the leadership is, they know where their main hideouts are, they track their communications. And, and, and so because the government is armed with that wealth and that arsenal of understanding about these groups, these apparent sit and wait reactionary strategy on the part of the administration, instead of a more proactive, um, and a more hard um, and a more kinetic approach, right, towards proactively tackling these groups um, is indefensible. Um, and there are not many things I agree with, um, the personally agree with the um, Cardinal State Governor on. I, I probably, if I check, there's almost nothing I agree with him on. But I think on this particular point, and this is an argument that my organization has also made, Right, I, I think there is some currency to where um, El Rufai stands, um, in large part because it has there's nothing else in his playbook, right, that he can deploy or he can utilize, right, in order to get ahead of this particular situation. Security management is still a federal priority. Uh, policing in this country is federally and centrally managed, which is incredible considering that one, we are a federation. And as far as I know, we are either the only federation in the world or we are on a very, very short list of federations in the world where policing is centrally managed. Um, and, and as a result of that, right, security priorities are determined in in Abuja, the president um, appoints all of the service chiefs. The president appoints the, the national security advisor, Mongono is the Buhari appointee. And Erufa is in this exclusive list of governors who have basically near unfettered access to, to the presidency. He's probably visited um, Asorok more than any other sitting state governor. Um, and so in terms of um, arguing his case before the presidency, I'm not sure you can make the argument that he hasn't done that. Um, whether he's done it in good faith or he's done it to fulfill his own personal political priorities or he's doing it to make it look like he's he appears to be working, that's a different conversation. Um, but when you are the governor of a state that has the highest concentration of security establishments in this country, there are 15 known uh, military um, training institutions, installations, bases, um, um, basically military infrastructure um, of any kind, right, um, in Kaduna alone. That's the highest in the country. Um, and it's also a state that has a well-known history of conflict situations rapidly escalating, you would expect that the government would handle this matter with a bit more seriousness and would be a bit more hands-on, right? And, and what you see happening in the Northwest, right? And this will be my final point, is kind of like what is going on in the Northeast rinsed, rinsed and repeated all over again, where a clearly festering situation has been allowed to metastasize and, um, in the aftermath of the splinter of the uh, Boko Haram central um, terrorist group in the Northwest, you've had something of an exodus, right, of former Boko Haram fighters, you know, flood the Northwest, coalesce with, you know, some of the bigger known armed groups in this region um, that have well-known access to logistical and armed supply networks, right, that cause right across the Sahel and the Sahara, right? And, and now you are seeing, right, a, a combo to Mary type situation evolve in the Northwest. And so I really, I'm, I'm really not very sympathetic to the National Security Advisor's arguments because if, if we are to take him at, at his words, then he is, he, is, he is sort of 
making the case for El Rufai that the government does indeed know what is going on in the Northeast, or at least isn't as clueless as the news headlines appear to make them. And as a result, it should be doing more, or its track record should be a lot better than it currently currently is. So that's where that situation stands for me. Thank you, Ikemesit. So let me come to Omasa, first of all. So I suppose the obvious question then becomes, if Nasir al-Rufai says he knows where the bandits are, and the National Security Advisor too is saying they know where these bandits are, bandits or terrorists are, then let's, let's set aside their infighting for one second. Why has nothing been done? to destroy these terrorists, if both of them both agree that they know where they are, Omasa? Well, to be fair, I do have to put a disclaimer. The person who says he knows where the bandits are is Errol Fai, who, let's put it nicely, is not known for being a truth teller in that kind of way. So I think we should, I, I should take it, I'm very skeptical about that story, which is very skeptical about that story. First things first, the, the Nigerian army is heavily overstretched. It's in operations in almost 27 states out of 36 in this country. The army soldiers everywhere acting as the police force. So in some cases, the army might not have any men to, to continue to be able to go after the bandits. Because at this point, there are only so many soldiers and there's, there's so many duties that they have to do. And so it might be possible. That might be one reason why. One reason why the why they can't find the band why they can't go after the bandits also the second point is like a lot of people keep suggesting that oh the government is happy for the bandits to do what they do because they are ethnically cleansing parts of southern Kaduna, which is enables it enables people from the north to settle in so there are very there are very very different reasons that, as to why as to why the government why the government cannot do anything after the bandits. I'm not sure which one, but this is your summary. Thank you, Omasa. Let me come to Phoenix. Phoenix, as is often the case, or as is often seems to be the case with this Buhari government, something happens, and then when there's a lot of media uproar, the next thing is denials and uh, obfuscation. Because I want to quote exactly what the National Security Advisor said. He said, Governor Nasir Arufai spoke about the security challenges, saying we know who they are, where they are. Again, this is the danger when you start talking too much. You give away a lot. Those were the words of the NSA. He was quoted by a number of newspaper organizations. But a day after, the National Security Advisor issued a statement denying ever making any comments critical of the governor. So, Phoenix, who, who is telling the truth? The governor? Uh, or is, who is telling the truth? The NSA or the media? Phoenix. And, and why is there even controversy about this whole idea of who is telling the truth when his comments were quoted? Uh, Phoenix. I think I think I think the comment you made about as 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 is uh, as we often see with the with this government. I mean, you know, there's always controversies like this that that just don't make any sense. I, you've you've answered the question in my perspective. I'm like, I mean, you were quoted. So how how does it become that this? you know becomes a controversy that that is going back and forth and, and things like that but you see people people say things there's no clear strategic intent and then when it comes back they try to undo and walk back what they've what they've said or the actions they've taken and i think that just that, that that's just funny to me number one the point around the whole El Rufai business thing I, I think Mugunu had has a point to be made it is clear that I mean Erufai makes certain statements and we've seen it over time that you know of course I mean you are the governor of the state they give you all of these briefings but 
surely that, that, that you, you have enough intelligence to know that there are certain things you should say and not say, and that you create operational challenges for for the security forces when you when you put out certain information that you shouldn't put out. And and so for me, I mean, that there's a clear issue there now. Of course, you also know that a lot of it was political posturing. I mean, we, we know the context in which you said it and, and all of those kind of things. Elections are coming. Everybody is now, uh, you know, jostling for airtime and trying to put stuff out there. And, and on, on Moguno's side, you also know that it's also political, right? I mean, everybody is in this game at this point in time. And so him calling out the Rufai was not just because he was worried about operational efficiencies, but I mean, there's, there's clearly some, some political stuff there. And so all this back and forth, just for me, the bigger issue is it, 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 it confirms the lack of seriousness and the lack of capability that has dogged this government in dealing with security issues. Because if they were serious about it and had put together the, the, the right you know, strategic intent, the clear with clear objectives and with clear plans and, and you know, actionable plans to to deal with the issues that we're facing. You won't be coming out, you know, with all this back and forth. And you're all, you're all from the same ruling party. So really what's what's to be gained with all this stuff that, that they are putting out there and denying and, and going, you know, while people continue to lose their lives, while we continue to have a state of heightened insecurity across the country. They've never been able to have a handle on the insecurity issue and Moguno, I mean, why he continues to keep his job is beyond me. I, I don't understand it. I mean, if there's ever a national security advisor that has failed, he is he's clearly one. I mean, the country is in a much dire situation than it was when he first took the job. So he even he doesn't he doesn't have a leg to stand on on the on the on the issue that he's calling out. So for me, it's just emblematic of of the of, of the way this government has operated and. I mean, we, we should expect to see more of the same over the next year until it goes out. And then we see what comes with 2023. Thank you, Phoenix. It's been an interesting conversation. My final question to you on this point is with regards to El Rafai himself, he doesn't really, because a number of his supporters often allege that people are a bit too critical of him because actually he doesn't control any of the security agencies. So it's always a bit unfair when he's the one criticized for any terrorist attacks that take place in the Kaduna area. Um, how do you respond to that? Do you think there's merit in what they are saying? Michael, I, I don't understand. Well, you can't you can't ask how do they say this thing um you can't you can't wake up a man that is pretending to be asleep or or even better yet you can't um uh you can't expect someone to do something or say something different if if he's if the food that will be on his table depends on him taking a certain position people are saying that you're we're being tough on or people are being tough on Erufai because he doesn't command the armed forces I don't understand who's who ever said that Rufai commands the I'm forced. Everyone knows that, that that I mean we have a central security architecture in Nigeria and that they, they I mean all the security forces are federal and of course the president controls that. But let us not forget. I mean, and that's why I always say people should go back if they forget or maybe they don't follow um, uh, discussions, they should try and pay attention. When you center yourself in security conversations, you cannot extricate yourself when it comes to time to be held accountable. You cannot. He was part of the conversation when, when the, it's like, uh, what was uh, that IMN, uh, what they called him, I forget the name, the Zaki thing happened. He was part of the conversation. He, it was, who said that he took money to go and bribe people to stop killing people in the state? So I, I don't understand. So how does he do those things, take it upon himself to be involved in, in security conversations, wanting to take charge, but when 
when a lot of things that he does backfire, and yes, they backfire. One because he talks too much, clearly, and and he 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 a lot of things that he says are incendiary in the sense that they create more problems than than they don't. And when those things backfire and create issues, they now say that oh, you are holding him to account. I'm sorry. If you do not center yourself in the conversation, nobody will do that to you. Nobody is holding any of the um, Southeast governors accountable for the wahala that is happening with ESN now. Is anybody, I've not heard of any Southeast governor being held accountable for that. Nobody is holding, uh, what's his name, the, the Benue State governor. I mean, he, he comes out, he, 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 he speaks to the government and says that they're not doing enough. But he doesn't insert himself and try to be seen to be trying to solve the problem, create issues, and then all of a sudden you say, oh, no, they, I don't control the armed forces. No, yeah, you can't, <laughs> you, you, you can't eat your cake and have it. So don't center yourself in the conversation. Show that you truly mean well for all the people in your state. Show that you are really working and, and holding the people to account all of the time, not only when it's politically expedient and you're trying to make a point. Then people will see what you're doing and the and the value in what you're doing, and they won't hold you to account unnecessarily. No one is arguing that the box stops at Buhari's table and he has failed, but you have added to it by being a part of that conversation all along. Thank you, Phoenix. Thank you for uh, setting out the issues. Well, hopefully the listeners, especially those on social media, will make up their minds as to whether or not they think or if he's a key player in insecurity, or if he's not responsible. Now to our final topic. My main man, good luck, Jonathan, says he's discussing whether or not he will join the 2023 presidential race. I have to declare my interest because I genuinely like good luck, Jonathan. I was one of his supporters in 2015. Uh, he's not a perfect person. I know no politician is perfect, but there was something about his personality and his style of leadership that made me genuinely like him. He didn't seem to be, he wasn't divisive, he wasn't quarrelsome, he seemed to genuinely like Nigerians and to be genuinely concerned about the well-being of Nigerians. I was, I was a supporter of Goodluck Jonathan, so I should declare my interest. I, I still, I, I admire the, the man. He's one of the few Nigerian leaders, I, I say, he has a good, has positive character traits. But anyway, this, this is not about me and my support for Jonathan. It's about his, he says he's discussing joining the 2023 presidential race. So firstly to Omasa, a gang of Nigerian youths and adults, because often when Nigerians say youths, there's always people who seem to be men in their late 40s and 50s claiming their, their youths. But they all seem to gather around Jonathan's home, screaming, run, Jonathan, run. I can imagine at first, Jonathan was probably thinking there was danger. That's why they were telling him to run. But apparently, they want him to run for, for the presidency. So, Omasa, are you, are, you support, are you in support of this campaign for Jonathan to run? Omasa? I'll be, yeah, I'll be honest with you. I do have a soft for good luck, Jonathan. I quite like the man. And like you said, I think, he's, I think he genuinely was someone who wanted the best for Nigerians. However, I did not support him running for president. Again, he lost it in 2015. I think, he should, I think he should be an elder statesman and stay out of the fear of politics. Nigeria does not, Nigeria at the moment does not need him to become president. He, he's, he's better, he'll be probably better off being an elder statesman and doing things in that kind of way, like going to the country and uniting Nigerians together. Because I think he is the wrong kind of person for the elections in 2023. Nigeria needs someone from the South who can fix the economy and unite and heal a lot of the damage that occurred from 2015 to 2023, especially for our national unity. I don't think Good Luck Jonathan is the person to do that at this point. So I, I like Good Luck Jonathan, have a soft spot for him, but I do not think he should be running for president at this time. He's better becoming an elder statesman and staying out of the free of politics. He should let other people take a chance and see what they can and let them do what they can do and support them from the back. And also, oh, I rather I rather also doubt that that the youths were spontaneous. It's like, as you know, in Nigerian politics, these things are usually a precursor for, as you state as a precursor to get you to the race. Like when your friends can buy you a form, for example. So 
that's my view. I think Jonathan should run, shouldn't run for president. He should be, he should stay in his role as an elder statesman. And because that's one thing we need, especially after these Buhari's years, we need, we need people who can be seen above the fray as a neutral above the fray and willing to, and people, and some people can trust. We, we don't have that many of them in Nigeria. And if we, most of the ones we do have are old and will be out of the picture in the next 10 years. So I think Jonathan should not run for president because of that kind of thing. We need elder statesmen in Nigeria. And he's the only one, one of the few people who can step into that role. Thank you. Thank you, Omasan. Um, who, who, was it you, Phoenix, that invited Omasan to this podcast? Because I cannot believe people are coming here and hating on good luck, Jonathan. But anyway, we forgive you, Omasa. I'll bring in uh, Phoenix next. Uh, Phoenix, they say he, the rumors are the ticket might be offered by the APC. So you mean after all the years of demonization of Jonathan, the APC might be the one to offer him the presidential ticket? How is this going to work, uh, Phoenix? You know, it just, it's, it's, um, you know how people make this case that APC and PDP are the same. And it has always been fascinating to me that the APC guys never push back. It's the PDP guys that push back. So I've always wanted, I thought you guys came in on the platform of change. Why are you happy to be lumped together? But, you know, strategically it makes sense, right? I mean, they are clearly failing and they know that. And so if, if they, if they can allow people to accept that notion that the both parties are the same. So clearly, I mean, why replace one failure with the other? But I digress. I think, I mean, I, I, I share your sentiments and I, I, while it, I would not be surprised that APC would do it for the point I just made and also with all the cross carpeting we've seen. Um, and I know that, I mean, APC has always been a party that the end justifies the means is like their mantra. Like they will do anything to, to retain power. This was, a, this was a vehicle cobbled together of strange bedfellows and um, the ultimate aim is, is uh, power. So if they think that Nigerians will more readily vote for uh, Jonathan, just like they, they believe that uh, with corruption being the single issue in 2014 that uh, Nigerians will vote for Buhari despite his past, they will go for it. So I would not be surprised. What will surprise me is Jonathan actually accepting that ticket. That would surprise me because, I mean, I, I, am, I, I have mixed feelings about Jonathan in the sense that for all the things that you mentioned, I do have a healthy respect for the man. Um, especially um, in the dying days of his, of his administration where he, he lived up to his promise. And that took my respect for him to, to a very high level where he clearly had said that his ambition was not worth the blood of any Nigerian. And he stood by that and he, he enabled a peaceful trans transition and, and I believe he has been amply rewarded for it in the, in the elevation of his, of his um, legacy since, since then. I mean, the way he's been feted and lauded everywhere. Um, in the run-up to the 2015 elections, I won't lie, I was, I, I mean, there, there, there are clear areas that I gave him a pass mark. There were, there were areas where I wasn't impressed. And I was open to change, but it had to be positive change. And the moment that the APC chose Buhari, there was only, there could only be one person I would support in that election, and it was Jonathan. I had supported him in 2011. And so in 2015, of course, I supported him again. But it was primarily because the other side had decided to be stupid and, and go and bring in somebody who should never have come, come into the office. And we've seen what has happened since then. But... For me, I, 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 I do not think that he should run for very obvious reasons. <laughs> I think a lot of people tell me I'm being dogmatic and, and, uh, and not uh, 
not practical and, and, and whatever they might say. I've, I've set my store and said that the presidency must go to the Southeast. So I don't want to hear any other person from any other region. He's, he fails on that in that regard. I think the second part for me is the 2023 elections is about, is also about restoration. It's a, I won't even say restoration. It's about salvation for Nigeria. Things have become so bad that you, we really need to fix this country. And it's not going to be a one-term fix. Anybody coming there thinking that this is going to be a quick turnaround, it must be off their rocker. You need, you need a two-term president to really, really painstakingly build something and create the foundations for continuity for this to work. We all know that Jonathan has done one term. If he used to run again, he can only do four years. I do not think that makes sense, given where Nigeria is. So for me, on those two counts, I don't think he should run. But I mean, to your question around APC giving him the ticket, like I said, I would not be surprised if they did it. But if he too, if he accepted it, it would uh, it will it will be something I will hold against him because I don't think I don't think he should he should uh, associate with those guys. Not with how they came after him, how I mean, not only him, his family, his wife, and all of that. And then even after they won the elections, they kept trying to make excuses for their incompetence by pointing to to his presidency, which was clear, which which he which history has now and, and providence has now shown us that he was a far better leader than any any of the people that uh, that the APC has put forward over the last seven years. So that, that's my viewpoint on the whole matter. Thank you, Phoenix. I see you two are telling good luck not to contest. Anyway. Master, I was only joking when I said we're going to ban you from this podcast. You're always welcome to to air your contrary views. I, will, but, you know, I do have to make this point. It's not like I'm saying that Jonathan is bad. I just frankly think he should not run for the presidency in this coming election season because I don't think he is suited. It is not whether I like Jonathan or don't like Jonathan. It is just a simple fact. Not going oh, thank, thank you, Amasa. Thank, thank you. No, but anyway, I was, I was only joking. I actually... I think I, I quite agree with both of you. My preference for this election is actually Peter Obi. I think Peter Obi is, is the best candidate on, on uh, across the board. But I think if, if the PDP gives a ticket, if the APC gives a ticket to Jonathan, then it will be a good race, at least an Obi v. Jonathan. So Nigeria wins either way because I don't think either of them will be bad presidents. So I'm, I'm happy to settle for Jonathan in APC if Obi doesn't win. So fully agree with that. And and Michael, to the point you're making, I mean that would be the first time Nigeria will have a really tough choice to make. I don't think we've we've had tough choices to make in except maybe okay, maybe your Basanjo versus Falai. But since Buhari has been running, we haven't had a tough choice. That would be a tough choice for a lot of people <laughs> to make between Jonathan and Obi. And that would be good. It's good to have yes. kind of difficult choices. Not the kind of nonsense we've had over the last. Uh, yes, no, no, I agree. I think the the southeast deserves the presidency, and this is the first time we have someone from the zone who is both the most qualified and also most deserving because of his his region. So, I'm 100% Peter Obi, and the only way I'll support Jonathan is if, uh, as as is if Obi is is not on the ticket. But anyway, to Ikemasit. Ikemasi, there's the question of how this will sell to the Nigerian people. Do you think Jonathan on the APC as a presidential candidate is something Nigerians will be excited about? Or do you think they'll, they'll think, oh God, this man again? How do you think, that, what do you think the response will be, Ikemasi? Um, I think Jonathan, the president, well, I should say Jonathan candidate has enough of enough of a political credibility check on his resume that he might consider I mean everything almost anyone feels like an upgrade right now on what we currently have um, at least that's the impression I get from talking to uh, quite a number of people again across the political spectrum and you know in many parts of this country, right? Because it's 
it's kind of my job to do that. Um, the problem is with the platform. And I think this is where uh, the Jonathan camp should be should be a bit more careful. First, you know, Jonathan going to the APC is probably the worst kept secret in Nigerian politics. It's been, it's been circulating in, at least in some of the most inner circles, right, of the APC since the middle of last year that I know of personally. Um, but the platform, the APC as a party, first the APC, and I, and I concur with Phoenix on this point, in that this is where the clear dichotomy between the APC and the PDP lies. The APC oftentimes feels like a political special purpose vehicle, um, wherein the quest for power outranks any, any taxid attempt at a coherent political ideology. And I know ideology is not something that we do very well in this part of the world, but still there is, there is a method to the madness when it comes to the PDP. Is, is the way I would put it. Um, there doesn't seem to be any, any mathematical solve for X when it comes to deciphering the inner workings or the overarching political thinking of, of the APC, save that they want to be in power, retain power, hold it by all, by all costs, which is where Jonathan being on the APC ticket does come in, right? The APC is sufficiently spooked about its chances um, next year that they are willing to consider um, people who they think will put them in the best possible state to retain power while not ruffling so many feathers internally. I, I personally think that whichever way this goes, there will be a mass defection from the ruling administration because somebody will be upset and some people's political interest would be um would be would be dispensed with either to get jonathan on the ticket or to um or to have any of the um the regular the regular names being bandied about right um get on that ticket so whichever way you look at it it probably will be a net win um for the PDP. I also think that Jonathan's political credibility will suffer somewhat um, if he does cross the carpet. But it's quite curious that he hasn't come out to actively counter or or deny or or do anything or say anything which stands um, in contrast to this slow building groundswell of. Uh, of political movements towards the APC. It's also interesting that some key um, elements within uh, within South-South politics, right, are tending to or flirting with the APC, which if you follow Nigerian politics closely, is oftentimes a precursor before a very big political defection. Um, the final point would be that the current atmosphere in terms of you know where the judicial how the judiciary is trying to make sense of the effect of political defections could also be a factor right with respect to this because if, if jonathan is crossing campus and is going to the apc there will be there will be governors there will be lawmakers at the federal and at the state level which who would be making those calibrations and in the light of recent court decisions which have mostly been of the opinion that uh, political parties are the platforms that Nigerians vote for and the political candidates. And so if you change your political platform, then you have, you know, ab initio um, vitiated your, your rights to remain in political office. That will also be something that will be rolling in the minds of a lot of people. And so um, even though Jonathan moving to the APC will definitely lead to quite a number of people moving, you might not see as massive a movement in that direction, as you would probably have seen in previous election cycles, because um, now it appears as though the, the courts are beginning to penalize, right, in a very substantive way, uh, and political defection um, in, in this election cycle. So whichever way you look at it, it's not as simple as if Jonathan gets here, one, he will get the ticket, two, he would ensure that the APC um, would retain power, but you, you can clearly see the thinking 
right on the part of the APC. For Gulag Jonathan, personally, um, and in terms of where his political and future goes from here, the the calculation is is a lot less clear. And so and so and so that's why I think um, that there are political observers who think that this is um, all fury, you know, without much fire. Um, I think there's probably more than meets the eye with respect to this, just for that singular reason. Thank you, Ikemesit. But there's one question I need to ask. You've uh, said that it's been an, basically an open secret that Jonathan has been close to the ABC leadership for at least a year and is almost in the inner caucus. And the question is, how, how did this happen? How did we start from... 2015 with Buhari demonizing Jonathan and his family and even prosecuting them with various court cases to him suddenly becoming a member of uh, Buhari's inner circle. How, how did this happen? I am glad you asked. Now, to be clear, I'm not making the argument that Jonathan is part of Buhari's inner circle. I'm just saying that th there are people within the president's inner circle who think that this is one. And, and the, the only way to look at this in, in a fashion that makes sense is to think about the inner political dynamics within the APC. So how did the APC right, get to be in 2015? The old CPC, mostly Northern faction, right, um, combined with the two Southwest factions, right, but the primary Southwest faction being the, the old um, Action Congress of Nigeria, right, the, the ACN. Um, and then there were a defection of um, six, seven, um, disaffected PDP governors from various parts of the country, right? Um, and, and so that cobbling together of three strong regional political factions, which individually could not compete with the PDP at the national level, uh, eventually put the consolidated APC over the hump. Now, what has happened post-2015 is that there have been simmering and now almost next to open political tensions between the old CPC core faction, which has successfully um, um, arrogated for itself um, all of the key institutions of state and governance in this country, as well as all of the state captured benefits that um, naturally follow from controlling those institutions throughout the current Buhari administration. And it has largely shut out the Southwest ACN faction. And that faction is very restive. It's very, um, it's very upset about that. And the fear within the old CPC faction is that if the gentleman agreement, right, which, you know, both of those factions entered in, into each other prior to the formation of the APC, wherein one passes the baton onto the other, does occur next year, then that old ACN faction will basically do what the old CPC faction has done for the last eight years, which is recapture all of those institutions of state, all of those elements of, you know, state resource control, and to tack that on, it would go after politically and also in the courts and also in the courts of public opinions so some of the key leading lights right some of the you know the really fundamental um members of that old cpc faction and that's their worst political nightmare and they don't want that to happen and so for them the political calculation is that it is better for them to make peace with an old enemy in this case the former president Bullock jonathan whom they ousted in 2015 at the ballot box, than to find some kind of political accommodation with the old ACN Southwest faction, which to be clear has made it clear that it is up for a fight and it wants to be competitive and it wants to get its way come, come what may. And so both of those internal APC factions right now are loggerheads and it is, it is a real statement of the state of political affairs, as well as the state of the APC's management of this country's affairs, that, you know, there are APC members that find it more palatable to talk to the other side than for them to talk internally. And so that's where the Good Luck Jonathan political calculation becomes, you know, relevant um, in understanding how 2023 will be, and also why, 
you can understand why there are elements within the Jonathan faction that see this as probably his best opportunity to return him back to Asurok. Again, with all of those necessary caveats around, around this not being a sure and a done deal, even if you know all of the all of the pieces are lined up right. Thank you, Ikamasit. It seems like the 2023 permutations are going to be quite interesting. But our time is up. So firstly, I must thank Omasa and Ikemasit for taking time out of their busy schedules to be here. Thank you, Phoenix, for co-hosting this podcast with me. And last but not least, I say thank you to our listeners for always taking time out to be here on this podcast. 2023 is going to be an exciting time. And I encourage those of you who are in Nigeria to please get your PVCs and make sure you take part in the political process because it's important that whoever you elect uh, is the right candidate because it's four years and Nigeria cannot afford four years of backwards leadership. So please vote for the candidate of your choice, whoever that person may be. But until the same time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days to everyone. Thanks, Michael, and thanks, Ikemisit and uh, Omasa for joining us. Thank you, listeners. I mean, Michael just took the words right out of my my head. I mean, from now on, we're on this campaign about get your PVCs. I, I think, um, and, I, and I said this on Twitter, we need a massive turnout next year. I'm, I'm targeting 60 million people. Now, bear in mind, in 2019, I think we only had a turnout of 29 million friends. So I double it. If you're if you're truly going to make move the needle and and bring in the right type of leader, everyone needs to come out. And so get yours. Talk to your friends, your in your WhatsApp group, and in your office. We need significant momentum for everyone to not only get their PVCs but also you know make plans to come out on election day and and storm the polls. They can't rig when everyone comes out to vote. So let's come out and, and save this country. Bye everyone and have a great week.